Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. As I'm recording this, people in Houston are still struggling to survive Hurricane Harvey, and a realistic estimate of the number killed won't be possible to make until floodwaters subside. If it weren't for the first responders and a flotilla of volunteers rescuing people trapped in their homes and vehicles, what will no doubt be a grisly death toll would surely be much higher. It's in a crisis like this that we see humanity at its best, and also destructive fossil-fueled capitalism at its worst. Today, we're going to talk about Harvey, and on Tuesday, I'll be airing my interview on climate change with environmental reporter Kate Aronoff. The Tuesday after that, I'll have a special episode about the history and reality of the city of Houston with historian Tawana Steptoe and environmental justice legend Robert Bullard. A quick aside, as you have no doubt heard me say before in recent weeks, we need your support to keep this second weekly episode up and running. So please, if you're a regular listener who hasn't done so yet, press pause and go to patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig and make a contribution. Also, this week I want to ask you to make a donation to Houston. There are a lot of great operations running on the ground, but I'm going to suggest that you donate to the Houston Coalition for the Homeless. You can do that at homelesshouston.org slash take hyphen action slash donate. That's homelesshouston.org slash take hyphen action slash donate. I'll put that URL in the show notes. Emily Atkin, welcome to The Dig. Oh my God, thanks for having me. The disaster in Houston is an environmental crisis, obviously, because global warming makes these sorts of storms more frequent and more intense. What specifically can we say about the role played by global warming and the resulting warmer seas and higher sea levels in the case of Harvey? Yeah, we can say a lot, actually. We don't need total attribution science to be able to say two really simple things that are totally uncontroversial in climate science, really, really widely accepted. The first thing is that we have a warmer atmosphere. Our climate is different. Our climate has changed. It is warmer. It's about 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer than it would have been without human emissions, right? And so in that warmer atmosphere, a warmer atmosphere is able to hold more moisture. Um, And so when rainfall events happen, rainfall events that were already going to occur, you know, without climate change, they're just able to dump more water uh, than they were before because the atmosphere can hold more moisture. Super simple. So we can say it's one of the most confident areas of climate science, right? That that rainfall is worse when rainfall is going to happen because of climate change. Um, The other thing that we can confidently say is that sea level rise is a thing, and sea level rise is caused by, you know, the the degree of sea level rise that we're seeing at least is caused by humans, our carbon emissions. And a a higher sea means that when storm surge happens, there's, it's worse. 
because there's a higher C. Now, there's also some other uh, speculations, and this will be this will come out uh, in the coming weeks, probably in the coming months, about the role of the really warm uh, Gulf, the Gulf of Mexico, and you know whether or not it was warmer than it would have been, and if that played a role, uh, bringing these tropical storms uh, over over Texas. But that's you know that's that's another conversation. But those two things, the sea level rise and the atmosphere and rainfall are really confident that we can say those two things. And another important point about Houston, um, which you've written about, is that it's already a pretty environmentally devastated place, um, which has exacerbated the damage done by Harvey. You reported that at least 25 plants have either shut down or experience production issues due to Hurricane Harvey's unprecedented severe weather and flooding. And that has caused them um, to release an enormous um, amount of toxic pollutants that pose a threat to human health. What's more, you write, is that the communities closest to those sites in Houston tend to be low income and minority thanks to the fact that we live in a horribly unequal and segregated society and because of a lack of zoning in sprawling Houston. What have you found in terms of Harvey's impact on the petrochemical industry in Houston and what dangers are people facing right now? Well, right now it's sort of just a danger. Um, What I'll say, you know, when you said that, when you said that, you know, these low income minority communities live right next to uh, these facilities in Houston. I think it's really important to double down on that and be like, they, and, and make sure people know how close these people live to these facilities. The reason that the reason that I started on this and started looking into this really early on in the storm is that I went to Houston to visit some of these communities in 2014, and they're always the first ones I think about whenever anything happens with a refinery in Houston because they li- literally live. It's like your next door neighbor is the, a refinery. The term is fed- the term is fence line, right? Yeah, and it's unlike anywhere I've ever seen in America. Um, yeah, it's fence line because it's a fence, and then there's a and then there's the refinery, then there's the chemical plant. Wow. I met a woman who lives in a house that's sandwiched between two huge simmering tanks of molasses-like chemical. That's that's real, you know. And so, to the question that you asked, what dangers do they face? My reporting was about the shutdowns, right? The chemical plant shutdowns, uh, which are, which most people don't know, are huge emissions event. If, if a chemical plant or a refinery has to shut down or stop production, they have to release a bunch of chemicals into the atmosphere, whether or not that's, you know, carbon monoxide, which is actually relatively, it takes a lot for that to be deadly in, in an outdoor environment, or it's carcinogens. Um, and when all of those are happening at the same time and all of those plants are really close to the fence line communities, that poses a health risk. Now, what I pointed out in the article that you're citing is that most of the shutdowns happened during the hurricane's beginning and, and during it, which means there was a lot of rain, there was a lot of wind, there was a lot of clouds. The pollutants that they were releasing were probably not going to harm those people's health more than their health was already being harmed by living next to it. What we're worried about now is the fact that they have to 
all restart and they'll probably all restart at the same time. And restarting is just as big of an emissions event uh, as shutting down. And with all of them restarting at the same time, with the sun out, with the rain not falling, with the no clouds, then we're going to have, I think, a potential problem. What are the dangers that people living in these fence line communities face during typical times that that do not include massive hurricanes? I mean, this has been an issue for literally years that nobody really pays attention to, um, which is that these communities that live in these fence line areas have much higher mortality rates than the rest of Houston and in some cases the rest of the country. Um, You know, it's hard to say scientifically whether or not that's because, um, you know, they're breathing in toxic chemicals all the time, but it seems almost like common sense, doesn't it? I mean, why would these particular communities that live right by these refineries and chemical plants that are emitting harmful carcinogens and and other, you know, just general uh, NOx that forms, you know, smog, particulate matter, breathing in particulates that can that we know can trigger asthma attacks, can trigger cardiovascular events uh, in the elderly, uh, and specifically children. And there are a lot of children that live in those areas. I mean, I remember when I was down there in 2014, and I was getting um, what the environmental justice uh, group down there, Tejas, what they call their toxic tour. Um, they just took me to this school, this playground where just all these kids are like playing outside. They don't care, you know, like they have no idea what's going on. They're running around playing soccer and you can just see an enormous flare that's right there. That's, you know, uh, the equivalent of maybe a block away, two blocks away. Um, just, it's like this weird apocalyptic scene that is normal for these communities in, in the East end of Houston. It's, it was insane. There are these just layers of factors that compound the local ecological crisis. You have a petrochemical industry concentrated in poor neighborhoods in Houston that is posing a direct threat to those people's health. It's also um, playing a role in producing the greenhouse ga- gases that are intensifying and accelerating climate change with which intensifies storms like Harvey which then hit those same communities and exacerbate the direct pollution that these communities are facing from those petrochemical factories what's your assessment of the mainstream media's job so far in putting this storm, this disaster, in its environmental ecological context. There's been this trepidation, you know, trepidation about politicizing the the disaster. I think. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't subscribe to the fact that that you can't politicize a disaster. Um, I think that I, I wrote about this actually a couple a couple days ago, which is that there is completely appropriate politicization of a storm when when public officials have made decisions that made the impacts of this storm worse, when public officials have done things or ignored things that means that there is there are more deaths happening right now. I don't blame the mainstream media, uh, specifically cable news, for focusing a lot on the human impacts right now and not talking a lot about climate change, not talking 
a lot about policies at this moment, just because I do tend to agree that the immediate threats to human health and human life are what we should be focusing on. Now, um, I've noticed today that there, this, you know, today's the day when the Arkema uh, chemical plant explosion is happening, and that's all over cable news. You know, there's been like two little explosions, and um, they had to evacuate the surrounding area, which is about 4,000 people, right? And that's providing a lot of drama and footage and stuff like that. And, and I get that. That's really important. But I've seen nothing uh, on cable news about these air pollution impacts, um, which, which will potentially harm the most vulnerable communities. And I would hope that in this critical time when we're supposed to be talking about threats to human life and human health, that, that at least somebody starts touching on it because it's just it's another thing piling on to all the other risks. I think they've, got, they've done a good job with, you know, water pollution, flood water pollution, drinking water stuff. They're usually pretty good with that. What about the context of climate change? Um, yeah, nobody's talking about that. I wish that I wish that it was more in everybody's wheelhouse where it just is natural for newscasters to talk about climate change and how it impacts. Uh, weather events generally, um, but I think that most political reporters, most re- even weather reporters, um, aren't super well versed in it and don't feel comfortable talking about it and feel like if and they feel like if they're gonna if they if they're gonna mention it then they're gonna get a bunch of hate mail. But it's this, these are the facts. I wish that it was more of a uh, I wish they were making the connection right now. Obviously, but you know, as the discussion about the storm. Uh, moves away from immediate threats to human life that we do start hearing more from the mainstream media about how climate change made this storm worse and how lack of adaptation policies to climate change, how denial from local and um, national officials, denial of climate change and its impacts uh, helped make this storm worse. But I'm giving it them a little bit me, of benefit right now. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me, though, like sort of covering a, a murder and not looking into to who pulled the trigger. Um, it's not politicizing the murder to look into who pulled the trigger. It's like the facts of the case. <laughs> well, exactly. And and also, it's just I mean, it's all of this is inherently political. The fact that the and politicizing isn't a bad thing. You know, the decisions you made over climate change, they were political and they impact human lives like who pulled the murder trigger is political because it's 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 politicians who did it, you know. Um, environmental justice is political. The fact that minorities are the ones that are going to bear the brunt of this storm, you know. Let's politicize. That's that's how I look at it. I'm like, let's politicize the shit out of it. You you recently did write that the Washington Post found the only bad way to politicize Hurricane Harvey. <laughs> what would that be? Yeah, like I said earlier, it's only cool to politicize something if it's holding people accountable for human lives lost. The Washington Post published this article that was like, oh my God, what was the headline? It was like, here's, it was like, how many votes is Harvey going to cost Trump in, in election 2020? And I just looked at the headline. I was like, no, 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 no. Like that is nothing that anybody needs to be thinking about right now. <laughs> it doesn't serve any 
legitimate purpose. And I feel, I almost feel bad coming down on them so much because like these researchers, you know, they published, they published fine research about how natural disasters impact presidential elections. But I I was just like, go away. (laughs) Like, oh my God, go away. That's like a wait, that's like a wait a week or two or three story. That's, that's months. (laughs) Yeah, that's months and months away. I was just like, and you know what, Jen, to uh, Twitter's credit, you know, like the ratio of, you know, retweets to comments, there's like, you know, 50 retweets and 400 comments where everyone's saying, like, screw you, Washington Post, what the hell is this? So I had a little faith in humanity there. That's the only bad way you can politicize the storm is to talk about, like, how how it's going to hurt Ted Cruz in 2018 or like, who the fuck cares? Everything's hopefully going to hurt Tez, Ted Cruz in 2018. <laughs> Um, but I think it is fair game though, to comment upon Trump's visit to Texas, which was truly bizarre. Um, maybe not so much by Trump standards, but the fact that he basically turned it into an impromptu campaign rally was pretty awful. So weird. I mean, did you see that he was wearing hats? that he sold on his website for $40. Yeah, and Melania was in a, a Flotus hat. Yeah, that it was like weird product placement for the Trump re-election campaign. He didn't meet with any victims. That's I mean, I think that's unprecedented. I don't I don't know. This is this is actually one of the first natural disasters I've I've covered. Um, you know, I've covered a lot of environmental disasters and this is this is crazy, but I just <laughs> It was comical in a way, but also sad and and just predictably weird as hell. The the other piece of the week's news that I'd like to discuss, and um, you wouldn't think it would be related, but it is, um, is Trump's decision to pardon the sadistic anti-immigrant federal judge flouting former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Um Trump was criticized for announcing the pardon last Friday as the storm made landfall. And his response to that criticism was by saying he did so precisely because the hurricane meant that the pardon would get better ratings. Which is so insane and just, I think, evidence that the president might be a sociopath because it's just like total disrespect. I mean, profoundly disturbing, right? It's just total disregard for all of like how other people might feel about, you know, the fact that they know their city is about to be devastated. And you're just like, oh, I want more people to talk about me pardoning a guy who like failed to investigate hundreds of child sex abuse cases and staged an assassination against himself one time and is also a horrible racist. What? Like, what? Where are we? What do we live in? What is this? <laughs> Emily Atkin, thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Emily Atkin is a writer at The New Republic. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, 
While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, and by episodes, I now mean two a week, mostly. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, leave us a review. Also, please tell your friends about the show. If you think they'd like it, tell them to give it a try. And also, please find us on Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash The Dig, and make a contribution. We can only keep doing two shows a week with your support. Thanks. Thanks.